What do you fear most? Uh, some of you are thinking, oh, I don't like getting up on ladders. I don't like heights. I, that freaks me out when I get on heights. Or maybe some of you think, I don't like the dark. I don't like the darkness. I don't like going down in that dark cellar. I think that's why they use dark cellars so much on uh, horror movies because it's a place of fear, right? Or some would, some of you might say, um, I don't like to be in tight, confining spaces. <laughs> I like to have room. I need room, right? Back off. <laughs> Give me a little room. Or some of you more fear spiders and, of course, snakes, right? You just can't, even if you see them on TV, you go, Then there's the social fears, right? The social phobias, the fear of crowds. Um, the, the two greatest fears that I've heard, and different people have said different things, but essentially they say the two biggest fears that people have is fear of death, and the fear of speaking before a crowd. So I think the greatest possible fear combination you could ever have is speaking at your own funeral. (laughs) But alas, that's never going to happen, so don't worry about that because it probably won't happen. (laughs) Um, In our passage this weekend, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and in the passage we're going to look at, it's not one that I'm sure that your children, if they were ever in a Sunday school class that used flannel graphs, or if you were, they never did this lesson. Okay, it's about John the Baptist being beheaded. Okay, would, it would make for a great flannel graph lesson for some boys at a certain age. Uh, Mom, they had the coolest lesson, you know, but it would be a little inappropriate. So you'll never see this, you know, maybe it's on discount somewhere, but you probably you're not going to see this being a flannel, gla- flannel graph lesson. So let's, let's jump to um, Mark chapter 6, verse 14, and that's page 817. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have these Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you go to page 817, you'll find where we're going to be. Now, what's interesting about this passage, and we're going to talk about it a little bit this weekend, is there's an underlying theme. If you just read this passage, you might read, oh, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. And it was kind of this really odd thing that happened. And, you know, it's too bad he was a good good man, and he was. A faithful follower of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus. And... They put this story in there, and but there's something that's under the surface that if you look a little deeper, you'll find something. And that's what I want to draw out a little bit this weekend. So if you're, if you're there, hopefully you're there, Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Let me, let me read through the account. So I'm going to read through verses 14 through 30. King Herod heard about this. Now the question is, what did he hear about? Well, he heard about all the miracles that Jesus and his his followers were doing, how he cast out demons, how he's healing people, all these different things. That's what he heard. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that that is why uh, miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. That's one of the prophets of the Old Testament. 
and still others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders uh, to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. I know, it's messed up already, isn't it? For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to, to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. Why? Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard this, he was greatly puzzled, yet he listened. He liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune, opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for the high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give, you, and I'll give it to you. And, and he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of uh, John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oath and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately set, uh, sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went beheaded John in, in, uh, in the prison and brought his, his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of, uh, he hearing of this, John's disciples came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported him all that they had done and taught. All right. So what I want you to see here is there's something that Mark is doing. As he gives his account, remember I've said this, we started the Gospel of Mark. What Mark does and what the Gospel writers do is they're not giving you a, a blow by blow, day by day, month by month uh, uh, timeline of the life of Jesus. They're taking events in the life of Jesus and they're mixing them up many times to make a point. And so sometimes they take them out of order or in a different order, but they're, they're do, using it for a theological or biblical point. That's what they're doing. Mark is absolutely doing that here. So, and I'll show you why. There's a kind of a sandwich going on here in the text. If you read the text, uh, jump over to uh, verse 13 of chapter 6. Notice what it says. Verse 13 says, They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Right? And then we jump into verse 14 where we're talking about King Herod. Go to verse 30. I read verse 30, but notice what... Let me, read, let me read verse 13 and then read verse 30 and just see what you think. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. You see what's going on here? Verse 30 should have been the end of the, the account of the disciples being sent out. But he sandwiches in the story of John the Baptist. He does that on purpose. It's not a mistake. It's not an error. John is writing this, but he's putting it in this order, and he's putting it in, in, in. He's making the point of look at this, look at this, look at this. So the question is, why would he do that? What is he saying about John the Baptist? What, 
What is the point that he's trying to make about John the Baptist? Because he simply, uh, he is doing this. And I think if you look at it, essentially what John, or excuse me, what Mark is doing here is this. He's showing the reader, he's showing us, that the same thing that happened to John is going to happen to Jesus. The same fate of John is the, the fate of John is going to be Jesus' fate, and that's what he wants you to see in the Gospel of Mark. Early on, he wants you to see things are going to go bad for Jesus, and he wants you to see that. That's why he puts this in here. He wants you to see Jesus' power, his his might, his his ability to do miracles, his great teaching, and then he brings the story about John and his horrible death, and he's basically saying, and that's going to be happening to Jesus. Just wait and see. So I think that's why he does that. It's very interesting that he does that. So the question is, uh, we read about Herod in this, in this uh, passage. Who's Herod? W- w- what's the thing about Herod? Well, there were a number of Herods. We're talking about Herod Antipas. He was born in 20 BC. And uh, after his father's death in about 4 BC, he was given a fourth of his father's kingdom, which which basically covered the Galilee uh, area, the region of Galilee. Uh, that would be the northern area of Israel. Um, Herod had a love-hate relationship with John the Baptist. We read that in the passage. It's very, pretty clear. There's something about John that is fascinating to Herod. He, you know, now John is coming right into Herod's face, and he's saying, what you did, taking your husband's wife, or your, your brother's wife, and marrying her, is wrong. It's a sin. You're the leader of the Jews. You shouldn't do this. Uh, you know, you need to repent. Essentially, that's what John's saying. But there's something about John the Baptist that is, that Herod is intrigued by him and keeps him alive. He's in, he puts John in prison, but he doesn't put a hand on him. Even after his wife Herodias says, I would like him dead. I don't like what he's saying about us. I don't like what he's saying about me. And she is looking to kill him, but she can't because Herod is protecting him. So that's that whole love-hate. He loves, uh, you know, in a sense that he, he's intrigued by him, but he, there's a part of him that he, he doesn't like what John is saying to him. He's protecting him. She will find a way, and we, we already saw how she did that. We'll talk a little more about that. Well, let me just say a little bit about that. A couple things from the text. Number one, so uh, his birthday comes around, and uh, their daughter, Herodias, uh, their daughter comes and dances. Uh, some commentators say it was a provocative sexual dance. I don't believe so. I think it was a little girl who came in, and she danced for the crowd. And everybody said, oh, isn't that darling? It's beautiful. And Herod says, makes this statement. He says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom, whatever you want. Well, that's kind of overstatement. He really wasn't going to give her half the kingdom. It was a point of, it's like, you know, we, we, you, hear, you hear in some movies, mafia movies, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. Well, they're not going to give you whatever you want. They're basically just overstating. Essentially what he's saying, you ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And I believe this was a little girl that everybody clapped. She was cute. And she went to her mom, what should I ask for? And of course her mom says, ask for the head of John. And she does. And Herod is in a difficult place. We'll talk about that. So I think that's kind of what went on. I don't think there's any, any sexual uh, 
things going on there other than it was a little girl who danced and a mother who manipulated her little girl to get what she wanted. We've never heard of that, have we? Um, so there's three questions that I want to look at. I want to try to answer. The first one is, how do you respond to windows of opportunity in your life? And you can have business window of opportunity, relational windows of opportunity, but there's also spiritual windows of opportunity that open up in your life. Herod had one of those windows of opportunity. What would he do with John the Baptist and his words? See, John was coming to him and saying, you need to repent your actions uh, as a leader of the Jews, even if you weren't a leader of the Jews, but because you are a leader of Jews, even more so, are wrong and repulsive to God. You need to repent. And so uh, that he had an opportunity. Uh, and, and like Herod, God gives us similar opportunities to repent. Uh, sometimes they're positive and sometimes they're negative. So Herod had an opportunity to change his life. He had an opportunity to get his life straightened out and kind of do the right thing. And John is the prophet sent from God to Herod to speak truth to Herod. The question is, will Herod listen to it? Will he pay attention to it? So John came to Herod and, and confronted him uh, with his sin. Uh, he could have become, become a new man, and instead he delayed. He made the mistake, and here's the mistake he made. He made the mistake of thinking that this opportunity would last forever, that there was always a day that he could repent. There was always something he could do. That's why he kept John around. He could have killed John right away, but he kept John around. And uh, I think he, there was a point where he was spiritually being a little bit intuit, intuitive. There was something that he felt a pull. And so he didn't really want to any. In fact, he protected John. And I think that, that God was working in his life at, at a, a point. But here's the point for us. We must never dare, that, or, or dare to think that the window of opportunity will be open forever. You know, I think of Judas... Remember Judas, he was one of the 12. He was one of the 12 that went out and performed the miracles that we read about and talked about last weekend. And uh, he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw the miracles of Jesus, probably performed his own miracles. He probably came back as they were recounting the de casting out demons and the healings, uh, that he was part of it, that the, the, the people were being healed through him, that he was casting out demons, and they were rejoicing. Jesus, re don't rejoice that you're doing all these miracles. Rejoice that your names are written in the, in, in the book of life. So he, he was clearly right in the middle. He, 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 he heard the teaching of Jesus. He, he heard it face to face. He didn't read about it in a, in a, in a book that was written thousands of years later. He he was there in the midst of the teaching. He saw it. He heard Jesus teach. But Judas made a choice to betray Jesus. He had a hidden sin. And as you read through the Gospels, you find out that he had a hidden sin with greed. That he was taking, he was the, the money keeper for the, for the group. And he was taking money out for himself out of the group's money bag. And not only that, he sold Jesus out for silver. I want to ask you a question this weekend. What's, what's your window of opportunity? Uh, what is God challenging you to repent of right now? Repentance is just a simple word. And we often think when I throw the word repentance out, we think of the guy standing there, repent now, you know, on a street corner in New York City or somewhere. And repentance is a very simple word. It means do a 180. 
It means instead of going the way you think you should go, maybe you should turn to God and say, what way would you want me to go? After all, he is the creator of the universe. He created us in his image. It might be that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. So turning to your creator and repenting and saying, what would you want me to do is not a bad thing. So my question is, what is, what is God asking you to stop doing? It's been going on for a long time. Uh, John comes to Herod and he says, you need to stop with this relationship. It's wrong. Maybe he's asking you to start something. Maybe he's saying, I, I want you to start doing this. I want you to, to do this. And you've put it off. You've said, well, someday, sometime, somewhere. Herod missed the opportunity. And not long after John the Baptist was killed, we still see Herod's conscience is getting after him. We read about that in the passage, right? So we're going back. We're jumping back in the passage to when Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, right? Because everybody's saying, oh, it's Elijah or it's one of the prophets or it's John. He, you know, and Herod thinks it's absolutely John. He, he's convinced that it's John. So he has these bad dreams about John the Baptist. And he says it might be John the Baptist coming back from light. He's haunted by John the Baptist. His conscience is, is still after him. And, and Herod is, is now fascinated not with John, but with Jesus. You say, well, what is he going to do with Jesus? Well, just like John, Herod is intrigued with Jesus. But when we get to the end of the book of Mark, and you'll, we'll get there in a little bit. It's going to take us a while to get there. But when we get to the end of the book of Mark, Jesus will go before Herod. Jesus will go before Herod. And all, all, all Herod does with Jesus is mock him. His heart is closed. The opportunity is over. It's gone forever, just like it was with Judas. And I believe at the Last Supper, Jesus was saying to Judas, this is it. This is your last chance. And it says that he, Judas went out and it was night. When, when, the, when the Bible says it was night, they're not telling what time of day it is. They're saying, spiritually speaking, it was over. It was done. It was dark. Herod shows no spiritual interest anymore. The opportunity is gone. The window is closed. And Herod is a different man. He has no interest in changing his life. He shows no spiritual openness to Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't say a word to him when he was brought before him. The moment of opportunity to change his life had gone forever. And we must not make the mistake that these spiritual windows of opportunity are going to last forever. Because Paul tells us, and he actually warns us in Romans. Here's what he says. Romans chapter 1, 21. I mean, we could say this about, we could say this about Judas. We could say this about Herod. For although they knew God, they, for all know, you know, Herod would, could say, I knew John. I knew what he was saying about God. Uh, Herod could say, I knew Jesus. I, he stood before me. For all, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal, uh, like mortal being, uh, human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. So there's a point 
that Paul says that you can go too far and God says, okay, if you're hell-bent to live that way, if you're hell-bent to walk away from me, I'm not going to keep you. I'm going to let you go. And things really get dark when that happens. So what's, what window of opportunity? Because see, Herod is, a, 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 the whole passage is about Herod and his window of opportunity. And he was, he was given an opportunity and he squandered it. Here's the second question. Whom do you fear most? Whom do you fear most? Herod feared John. It's, it's, and, and maybe fear is a bad word. Respected. Or was puzzled by him. Or was, you know, there was something about John that kept Herod from killing him. All right? Even though he was saying things that Herod didn't want to hear. You know? I mean, John wasn't like this, this guy who was like, hey, buddy, how you... No, he wasn't. He was like coming at him. He was getting in his grill. He was, you know, letting him have it both barrels. He was not backing down. And yet there was something about John that intrigued Herod. I think he marveled at John's fearlessness. Interestingly enough, John, we look at John, and what did, what did he see of John? He is absolutely fearless. He is absolutely fearless. He has no fear. He's standing before somebody who could just say, kill him. And he'd be dead. And he knew that. And he was absolutely fearless. Which in the end was his end. But it's interesting to see what and who Herod feared the most. So the little girl does her dance. Herod says, you know, ask me for whatever you want. I'll give it to you, right? And she goes to her mother and she says, what, what should I ask for? It says, the head of John the Baptist. Now, she probably heard this rant of her mother over and over and over. So it probably wasn't a surprise to her. She comes back to Herod and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So now Herod is in the middle, you know, so, so everybody's waiting, you know. And Herod's thinking, oh, she'll want a pony, or she'll want this, or she'll want, you know, she'll want something cute, you know, something nice. And she says this, and there must have been an absolute hush in the crowd at that moment. There was one of those moments where everybody stopped talking, everybody looked at Herod and said, what are you going to do? He made a promise to her. And you know what? Herod feared his, losing his reputation. He was more concerned about losing face in the presence of powerful people and the acceptance of people at the party. That was more important than doing the right thing. And saying, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. Ask for a pony. <laughs> he doesn't do it because he's concerned about his reputation. How many times have you lied, stretched the truth, played with the truth because you were cornered in a tough place? And instead of having, being fearless and saying, you know what, this is the truth. You may not like it. It is. Or just doing the right thing. Instead of that, you do the wrong thing because you're afraid of the crowd. You're afraid of peer pressure. You're afraid of what people around you might think. That's a fear. That's a real fear. In fact, I would say much of our life, if you were to look at your actions in the last week, in the last month, in the last year, 
some of the decisions you made that you're kicking yourself for, you did it because you were in a moment with people you didn't want to let down, with people that you wanted to find acceptance with. And that's kind of where Herod is at this point. And here's the point. If anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ becomes the center of your life where you find your acceptance, your self-worth, or your self-esteem, you will become its pawn. And Herod became a pawn of the... This is the most powerful person in the room. And he's a pawn to this little girl and the crowd. Acceptance by people at the party was more important than doing the right thing. You will become a slave to your career, to your family, to your fear, to anything or anyone. You will be moved. You will make decisions based upon your fear. Fear of acceptance, fear of rejection, whatever it is. All right, so let me close with one last question. How do you become... Fearless. The example in the passage is Herod is absolutely afraid. Now he would say, I'm not afraid of anyone. I'm the king. Well, he was afraid of a little girl. But there was one, there was one person in the story that showed that he was fearless, and that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was absolutely fearless. He doesn't fear Herod. And um, I think we need to say, well, how, why? Why was John fearless? John didn't fear death. He didn't fear Herod. He didn't fear anyone. Why? I think it's very simple. And I've said this before. But one of the things we see about John, let me read a couple passages. You have this in your notes. Just uh, write this reference down. Let me read it to you. So this is early on in Jesus' ministry because uh, if you think of a track meet, you know, when they do a relay, you hand off the baton, right? So the first runner hands off to a second runner and the second to the third and the third to the fourth. And so essentially what John is doing is he's handing the baton off to Jesus. You don't hold on to the baton. You let it go. And you try to make a good handoff, right? That's essentially what you're trying to do. Uh, so, so John is doing that. In John chapter 1, or excuse me, John the Baptist is doing that. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1. All right, so just real quickly, not going to assume things here. The one who wrote the Gospel of John is not John the Baptist. Those are two different people. John is the Apostle John who walked with Jesus and went with Jesus. He's not John the Baptist. But John, who wrote the Gospel, is writing about John the Baptist. All right, let me clear that up. All right, so John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this. The next day, Jesus saw, uh, John saw Jesus, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Many of you have heard that phrase over and over and over since you were a little kid. It's a little different in the older English. It's behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You heard that? Over and over and over and over and over. You ever wonder where it came from? It came from John's lips. John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man comes, who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. He was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, it's very interesting what John says. He says, he says he, sur- he surpassed me, meaning he's taking over. I'm handing the baton off to him. But he also says he was before me. Well, chronologically, he wasn't. Because, he, you know, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. And John the Baptist was born before, physically born, before Jesus took on human flesh through Mary. And what, he's, what John is alluding to is that he's not just a human being, he is God. He was alive way before me. But the point I want you to see is that John is pointing people to Jesus. He's saying, don't look at me, look at him. <laughs> Let me give you one other example. Uh, this is in uh, John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John John, and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who you testified about, that's Jesus they're talking about, look, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to, you almost hear them, everyone's going to him. They're all leaving us. They're leaving our group. We've been together. We're a group. They're leaving us. <laughs> to this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. And he says these incredible words. He must increase. I must decrease. In other words, John's saying, I'm not the main show. I'm the warm-up act. He's the Messiah, not me. And the answer to how you become fearless is you look to Jesus. (laughs) You look to Jesus. I use a phrase, and I've said it before. One of the greatest things that you can do to become fearless is that you begin to play to an audience of one. You play to an audience of one. Do you know that a band could get on stage? And let's, let's talk about a band that maybe is a Christian band in a sense that they know Jesus and they love Jesus, and they can play to an audience of thousands of people. But in reality, the hope is that they're playing to an audience of one. You know, in worship services, we often think that we are the, you know, the band is, you know, we do things like this. We come to watch a band perform, right? But in a worship service, what are we doing? We're not here to watch a band perform. We're here to engage in worship. And so the band is here to engage us together as we worship God. God is the audience, We're the participants in worship of God. That's the way worship works. And it doesn't just happen on the weekends. It happens every day of the week. When you go into work, you say, today I'm going to worship God with my attitude and my actions and my words at work. He's the audience that I'm playing to. He's always watching. I want to please Him. I want to serve Him. I want to represent Him well. And so John is pointing people beyond himself. So here's the principle I want you to see. If you focus on what the most important person in the universe says about you, that he totally accepts you and loves you, 
you will find a new fearlessness. It won't matter what others think because the most important person in the universe calls you his son and daughter. So it doesn't matter. Let's just say that I leave and uh, I'm, my wife and I are doing walking this summer a little bit. And let's just say that, uh, that I decide, hey, you know, uh, Carol, I'm just going to go for a walk. And I go out, go for a walk, and I come across a 10-year-old little runt, and he says, you're a jerk. And I don't even know who this kid is. Um, most healthy adults my age would go, okay. Uh, we wouldn't go home and say, Carol, i got to tell you what this little kid said about me. He said I was a jerk. I don't know what I'm going to do. We laugh at that, don't we? You say, well, that's ridiculous. Come on, stop it. Knock it off. And Carol would probably say that. She'd kind of look at me like, what? What's wrong with you? You know, wake up. Do I need to slap you in this? <laughs> but here's the thing. The most important influential person in your life right now when they say things that are negative to you, when they bring you down, or when you're doing things, you're, you're skirting the truth, you're pl- so you can be accepted by them, so that you can be loved by them. It could be your job. It could be, it could be an occupation. Those things, when you, when you prioritize those things, what did Herod do? He prioritized the crowd. I can't let the crowd down. I can't look like an idiot. I've got to look like I'm in control. That's a little 12-year-old kid. But the God of the universe says, would you look to me? Would you listen to what I have to say about you? You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. Don't worry about what other people think. You're valuable to the most important person in the universe. You see, when we begin to care more about what our Father in heaven thinks about us than what everyone else thinks, we begin to lay a foundation that beco- to become Fearless. That's how you become fearless. Why could John walk into Herod's presence and condemn him for his behavior, knowing that it was going to mean his life? Because he didn't care, because God had his life in his hands. That's where fearlessness comes from. Let me just close with this. I, I, I began talking about how there's this this parallel, and Mark in the Gospel wanted us to see the parallel between John the Baptist and Jesus. And there's incredible parallels. I mean, think about this. Both Herod and Pilate felt trapped between doing what is right. So we see Jesus going before, he goes before Herod, and John went before Herod. And Herod basically tosses him over to Pilate, and they're both, you know, rulers. Um, and um, instead of releasing John and Jesus... Uh, Pilate and Herod did what was expedient for their own reputation. Herod at that time is just making fun of Jesus. He's mocking him. Both Herod and Pilate acknowledge the innocent of their victims. Both choose to gain favor and and claim uh, the the acclaim of the world in exchange for their souls. So they they both say, I got to make the best move out of this. Both Herod and Pilate give the go-ahead that led to the death of John and Jesus. Both John and Jesus chose to lose their lives. Jesus lost his life so that we could live. 
And here's the point. If you become a servant of Jesus, you will lose your life for him, but he will give you an eternal one in exchange. And that's what John walked in when he confronted Herod with. He, he was fearless. Fearlessness doesn't just happen. Fearlessness is where we take a stand because we say, I'm going to play to an audience of one, and I don't want to disappoint him. After all he's done for me, I don't want to deny him. I don't want to bring shame to him. I want to live my life to honor him. And I really care what he thinks, not what the crowd thinks, not what my friends think. You'll become a person of principle. You'll become a person who is fearless when you do that. So on Saturday night, this was a long time ago, on October 8th, 1871, D.L. Moody, who was an evangelist who traveled around the world and centered his ministry in Chicago, Illinois, was teaching on the passage Matthew 27, 22. And the passage reads this, What shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And those are the words of Pilate. In other words, he's saying, what should I do with this guy? What should I do with him? So basically, Moody preached in his text, and he said to the people who were gathered because they were coming to the close of their time, they, he says this, he instructed the people, he says, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And the next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary and to the cross and decide what we're going to do with Jesus of Nazareth. So he says to the crowd, we're going to leave now, but I want you to think about this, because next weekend we're going to go to that mountain called Calvary, we're going to go to the cross, and we're going to decide what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus? You come back and we'll decide together. Most of the crowd never came back, because that was the year, that was the night of the great Chicago fire. And Moody always regretted, he deeply regretted, not giving people a chance to repent that night. He, he, he never realized that that window of opportunity, that spiritual window of opportunity was going to close that night for a lot of people. And here's what he writes. Here's what he writes. I have never since dared, he said, to give an audience a week to think of their salvation if they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I have never seen that congregation since. I would rather have my right hand cut off than to give an audience a week now to decide what to do with Jesus. Moody understood that the windows of opportunity can close in a moment. The window of receiving the gospel for you will one day close. That's why the scripture says today is the day. Of salvation if God is calling you to do something do not wait do something about it today let's pray father uh, whatever that window of opportunity might be maybe it's trusting Jesus for the first time crossing the line of faith it's very simple father it's a it's a it's a crossing of commitment it's a crossing of faith it doesn't have all the answers it doesn't, have a whole, it doesn't even have a whole lot of faith. It's just one person saying, I realize I'm lost, I'm a sinner, and I realize I need a Savior, and I realize Jesus is the only way. I realize that He died on the cross for me, that He took my sins, that He was buried and rose again on the third day. And it may be, Father, that uh, someone is here this weekend or somebody's watching and they've never taken that step. And they don't even know how to pray or what to pray. Maybe words like this might reflect their minds and hearts. 
Jesus, I realize that you gave your life for me on the cross. I realize I am a sinner and my sins separate me from you. That you took my sin, you took the wrath that I deserved, you took the punishment that I deserved. You gave your life for me so that I could live. I realize that it should have been me on the cross, but it was you. And as you gave your life to me right now, whatever it means, I don't really know the implications, but I know this. Like the thief on the cross next to you, I ask you, I want to give my life to you, and I want you to become my Savior, and I want to follow you. Again, I don't know what that means, but as you gave your life to me now, right now, at this moment, this window of opportunity, I give my life to you. And Father, if anybody prayed that prayer, I thank you that they've stepped from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That they become new creatures. That they will live forever with you in heaven, not because they deserved it or they've earned it, because it has been gifted to them by you. For the rest of us, Father, who have maybe taken a step like that, maybe recently or maybe a long time ago, I'm quite sure that some of us, if not all of us, are wrestling with something. We all need to become fearless. We all worry about what people think too much and not too much about what you think. And that's our problem, isn't it? May we understand that you love us unconditionally, that you love us as sons and daughters, and that you think highly of us even when we don't behave accordingly. We ask, Father, that you would work in our hearts and help us to take whatever steps we need to take before that window of opportunity is closed. And we thank you, Father, for speaking to us through your word this weekend. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.